folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac, and you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon. If you're enjoying what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast, we don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various ecological subject matters. We've also included clips of this entire series up on the Patreon as well, so if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. Any support we can get to offset our costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate, so go check out the Patreon. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to follow us over there, and we've recently created a Discord for folks that want to chat about the stuff we talk about in this podcast. In this episode, we're talking with Alex Langlands. You might be familiar with Alex due to his work on a variety of BBC series TV shows, all focused around farming. Shows include Victorian Farm, Edwardian Farm, Wartime Farm, among others. He's also the author of Craft, a book that talks about the history of crafts and craftsmanship and how that's evolved and where it belongs in modern society. In this episode, we chat a bit with him about this, the role of craft in the modern era, and how it can help curb some of our consumptive patterns and maybe offer a solution for some of the challenges the planet faces today. We have a great conversation really digging into some of this subject matter and we go off in a few tangents where we pair a lot of these subject matters with a common thread of this podcast, ecology. So take a listen and let us know what you think. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the chat. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? So uh, I consider myself an archaeologist, uh, first and foremost, uh, but uh, I, I work uh, as a, a lecturer now, senior lecturer at Swansea University. Uh, where I teach history, heritage, archaeology, um, but uh, people will know me from uh, most likely from a, a series of programs I made for BBC around historic farming um, and that sort of really in some ways so many of my interests overlap there being outside uh, getting dirty uh, and uh, you know getting hands-on with the past really is is one of the things that uh, I think best describes me. Yeah, uh, that was one of the really interesting things about the BBC series that you did. For folks that aren't familiar, there's a, I don't know, how many are there, like six of them, just about, somewhere around there? Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting to see how how much we've lost in terms of knowledge. And uh, like we, we can, as, you, as an archaeologist, I'm sure you can speak to the fact that you can go dig something up and be like, I think they used it this way. And then you go to use it and you're like, that, that doesn't make any sense at all now that I'm trying to do it. And trying to refigure that out is a, a, an art in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, myself and, and Peter Ginn, who, who appeared in many of the programs uh, uh, with me, one of the first things I think we met, actually met each other on something that's called uh, it was called Printech, uh, which was short for Primitive Technology Weekend, and basically a bunch of students from University College London would bus down to somewhere in the wonderful English countryside, uh, and we'd spend the whole week just um, in what's called experimental archaeology. Uh, so we would do sort of charcoal burning. Uh, we would make um, wooden shingles for buildings. Uh, pottery, uh, wood turning, traditional cooking, butchery, work, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and it was great. It was having a go. It was kind of ice breaking. But of course, you know, one of the best ways to really in, engage with how materials work is very often to, work, to, to talk to craftspeople, uh, indigenous groups who still use tools and equipment and those resources uh, in that way. So it, it's kind of been a thread, really, in archaeology for quite a long time, certainly ethnographic studies as well. And they, they, are, they have their problems, obviously, but, uh, but it's, it's been a thread that one way in which we can understand the archaeological evidence is to, is to experiment and to have a go ourselves. And, and, and that's, that's grown. And, and there are you know, legitimate courses to postgraduate level on experimental archaeology. 
So, you know, that in some ways the farm programs kind of came out of that, you know, because myself and Peter are the kind of people like, you know, often with the farms program, the director of production would say to us, well, you know, what, what, what are we going to do next? What are we going to film next week? And we'd be like, well, we've got to get some seed in the ground. And there's a, an old um, seed drill in the barn. So we're going to pull it out and see what happens. Nice. Uh, and, and that's often what we did. But of course, there, there are people around, even if they've only pulled seed drills with tractors, uh, who can give you a little tips, you know, don't dare take that seed drill into the field now. It's too soggy. You just, they'll clag up. It won't work. Oh, okay, that's pretty logic. So, a lot, you know, those programmes, a lot of it is, is what I would, some people call it living history. A lot of it's what I would call experimental archaeology, um, finding out about how things were done in the past by having a go yourself. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important to do. Yeah, I think you brought up a, a unique point about how there are cultures that are still using some of the technologies that we're rediscovering and however you want to talk about it, archaeologically or so how does that unique perspective from the people that have that uh, historical knowledge how how does that pair with us looking at it as an artifact that you know generally we think of artifacts as these like static things and now you're integrating a a, a living culture into that static item does that create a little bit more of a complicated conversation about that technology whatever it might be or does it help yeah. make it better yeah no i think so i mean there's, there's so another uh, the risk of sort of boring your listeners to death there's this kind of, kind of field of cognitive archaeology uh and one of the movements in in that is towards thinking about materiality uh, and our minds you know and there's this very traditional view that our mind is just in our head and the viewers can't see me but i'm tapping my head my your mind's just in there and actually cognitive archaeologists are arguing uh, amongst uh, uh, other uh, uh, psychologists as well is that the mind isn't just in the head the mind is in the body the mind is in our hands and the mind is in the objects we use on a day-to-day basis so our sense of self and who we are is constituted our, our mind is constituted through uh, our, our physical actions uh, the, and our skill you could say that's something i'm adding into it a skill, the way we move and the way we respond to the physical environment and tools and materials are part of that. Now, for me, without wishing to get romantic about it all, although I am about to, uh, we obviously live in a world now where we press buttons. And that's just about it, you know. Uh, even when we come to drying our laundry, we take it out of one machine, we put it in another machine and we press a button. So even going out and hanging laundry out on a line is, is, is not something we necessarily need to do anymore because there's a machine and a button that does it for us. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, how do we complicate the conversation is, is, is in that. How do we bring back that kind of sense of em- embodied mind or the mind being embodied uh, and through, through objects? And I think that speaks a little bit to, you know, I think something I've seen get brought up more and more over the past probably couple of years. Uh, and I know there's kind of a, a lag from academia to kind of mainstream conversation is this idea of ancestral knowledge. And I think that kind of plays into this a little bit um, where you're talking about this idea of memory that's not just in your brain, but also that memory that's cultural, that, that gets passed down and evolves um, with cultures that continue to do these types of things. Mm. And you brought up this really good point about the fact that we don't have that. And I'm as an archaeologist and somebody that spent so much time doing stuff hands-on, thinking about the future, I'm very interested in how archaeologists will look at modern, what we're calling now modern times, you know, from 1990 to I don't know when. <laughs> um, what, the, dig- the digital age, I think. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah very- let's call it the digital age. Yeah, there'll be a, in the stratigraphic sequences, there'll just be this thick band of plastic. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully above that thick band of plastic will be archaeological and environmental evidence for restoration. <laughs> I, I, I quite, I'm not quite convinced yet that enough people and, 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 and certainly in the Western world have woken up to that, that need. Um, but yeah, there'll be a thick band in the, in, the, in the geological sequences millions of years from now of plastic. You know, what are we doing with plastic? Come on, what, what's really happening with plastic is we're shortcutting in many ways. 
and and I, you know, I, if I bring up the example of the laundry basket, I, I could be accused of being a kind of whimsical romantic. But you can buy a plastic pressed laundry basket, which is a byproduct of the petrochemical industry, for about two pound, three pound. I mean, what are we talking? Four or five dollars, something like that. Maybe yeah. not even that. And do you know what that thing will last you if you really look after it? It'll look, it'll, it'll last you, but it won't last you as long as one that's made from split oak. Uh, now the issue is you're going to have to pay the guy to make the the basket out of split oak. 60 70 80 dollars maybe um so you know not everyone can afford that obviously uh, so i don't want to be elitist here but of course the plastic one once it's done with what do you do with it chuck it in a hole in the ground i guess or you know what what do you do with it the great thing about the oak one is if um you know if a bit of it breaks you can phone up the basket maker and he can replace it and and these things, uh, I'm talking about in particular, what I use for laundry baskets, what's called a swill basket. They're made in the north of England, a place called Cumbria. And there's a brilliant basket maker called Owen Jones. He features in Victorian Farm. Uh, and he really is the kind of poster child for that kind of basket. And uh, I, I bought one off of him recently, and it's a laundry basket. These things have a lifespan of 50, 60, 70 years, if you look after them. And if they start to fall apart, do you know what? You can chuck it in the back of your garden. That's as bad as it gets. You know, so I think we, we kind of look on plastic at the moment in this very common sense way. But of course, it isn't common sense. And what my romantic views about everyone having a split oak basket uh, as a laundry it is fast becoming common sense. It's not romantic. It's not radical. It's common sense. It, it's so, you know, for example, I tried to buy a coffee maker that didn't have plastic in it. And unless you get one of the ones that's like all glass with the little like filter in the middle, uh, there is no such thing as an all metal coffee pot. And that just seems insane to me. <laughs> and I think I spent like a week looking online like every day. And I was like, there's got to be one. Like, even if it's a thousand dollars, there's got to be one. And it doesn't exist. Yeah, no. I, I mean, that was one of the great things that uh, I, I don't know if it's like a sort of artistic sensibility, but uh when we made the farm programs, I mean, say for Victorian farm, for example, we turn up at the farm and the first thing you do is you hit, you periodize it. And periodizing is about saying, well, they wouldn't have had that, they wouldn't have. But I remember the, 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 the farm we use at Victorian farm had this sort of broken down JCB parked right in the middle of the farmyard. You know, you know what farmers are like, it, they don't, the, the aesthetics don't come into it. You know, if you can just dump a JCB there, and you're still using it because there's some there's some hydraulic pipes on it and there's some buttons and switches that you might at some point need. So it's useful. But you had to move all of that out and there's some oil drums, we had to move those and bits of plastic. And and in some ways it's an aesthetic sensibility. And 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 if you go on Instagram, that, that aesthetic sensibility is like, I want it to look bougie, I want it to look cottagey, I want it to look craft. But I think actually underpinning that is it are our environmental values. And I think one of the things that we've done or we've allowed society to do is to see that as backward looking, is romantic, as sentimental. It's not, you know, I, I've been a Green Party member now for over 15 years. And what underpins my desire to get plastic out of my house isn't because I want to turn the clock back necessarily to some halcyon days when everything was perfect. OK, it's actually because I, I have an aversion to the, the economy that's produced this stuff. L let's not just uh, uh, take plastic to task. There are certainly ways in which we can and should be using plastic. If we're gonna deliver the level of medical care that we have delivered uh, 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 across the, the globe in response to the pandemic, plastic has got a role to play. So let's not turn plastic into the demon here. It's profiting out of the reckless and irresponsible uh, production of plastic items that could otherwise be produced using sustainable resources. That's where we need to be. Absolutely. And I, I think a part of that attraction to, I don't want to say the olden ways or, you know, the, this uh, idea of what, what the landscape should look like in terms of a farm or whatever, is that I think like a very deep ancestral, like ape part of our brain like realizes what we're living in isn't natural for us, you know, to an extent, like, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't live in houses or anything like that. But you know, there's definitely like a part of our brain that realizes we're doing something very wrong with the way we live, where we're surrounded by a petrochemical. And 
um, that we, we aren't doing anything with our hands. And that's what like we are wired to do is work with our hands. Uh, the yeah. whole, the whole, um, muscle building like gym, uh, history came from the fact that you had a bunch of people that had been working with their hands all day and then they got stuck in a factory and as you know, industrialization took hold and they had this energy and they felt like they weren't being fulfilled. And that was a big piece of it is that at that time there was such a quick change that there was this desire to physically work. And that meant literally just going in a, a building and lifting things up and putting them down as simple as that sounds. Yeah. I, I mean, I know. And like, I don't know that you necessarily need um, psychiatrists or medical practitioners or educationalists of, you know, I'm not saying we're in the post expert age because we kind of are in Britain. Uh, um, but, but it, I don't think it does take that, that kind of expertise to point out that many young people are, are just not being fulfilled by a button pressing society. Yeah. You know, and I, I recognize it in myself now as a kid, I perform best at school at the t in the times when I was getting up really early and going out and delivering, delivering newspapers. And I was burning cycling uh, uh, around delivering 30 newspapers. You know, so the best part of like 15, 20 pounds worth of paper on my back around uh, my hometown, coming home, having my breakfast, then walking three miles to school. So by the time I got to school, all that nervous energy, anxiety that can become anxiety, that kind of, I, you know, that was gone. I just kind of burnt that off. You take that off. And I think the problem with our, our education system at the moment is kids get out of bed, get in a car, get in a classroom, and they're kind of waking up around about 10 o'clock. They're already in, and, and then that energy that comes out of a lot of young people has to be boxed into a desk and sums and maths and writing. And, you know, that's not right. It's not working. And it's not working for a lot of society. It doesn't work for a lot of society. Um, so yeah, that needs to burn that energy off physically. And of course we are, you know, we, we are made to pick, you know, our hands are made to pick. We don't have 10 well, for eight fingers and two thumbs to press buttons. I mean, you know, mobile phones have been designed around our hands. Our hands have been designed around mobile phones. We have been designed around picking and food, uh, a bit of hunting in there. We should probably talk about gatherer hunters rather than hunter gatherers, but you know that's what we've been designed around. Uh, and there's a certain fulfilment. Anyone who's who has the opportunities, this is the thing. If you have the opportunity to garden and grow your own food, this is the society we live in now. It's like I've only just started after a four five year hiatus. I've only just started growing stuff again because I haven't had the time in my life. And a lot of people don't have the time or the space. You know, time is money. It's a privilege to have a vegetable garden. I mean, it's a cultural choice. I don't, you know, don't get me wrong. It's a cultural choice. You can make the time. Believe you me, you can make the time. Whether you've got the space is another question. You have to maybe get on a, 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 um, a waiting list for a, for a council or a municipal plot somewhere. Uh, and in some parts of, of the British Isles, you've got to be a borderline multimillionaire. Uh, to buy a plot of land, a small plot of land to grow something in. Uh, so, you know, it, that's not easy in itself. But anyone who does that will tell you how much satisfaction you get out of it. And just a little, I've just started this year, decided to commit to growing some stuff again, because, you know, I big warning to anyone who wants to take up growing red vegetables. Digging your plot over is like less than 1% of the job. <laughs> you know, it's, a, you have to factor in four or five hours for a small plot a week write that into your calendar because if you don't it will get get you down and it's only this year where i've been able to sort of say okay i'm going to commit to this i'm not oh, being too ambitious like oh, i've got kids now you see this is the problem. i'm growing two little children yeah which is anyone to tell you that's enough of a job um but i was kind of on my hands and knees just digging out some uh weeds uh to prepare a bed for some um putting some rye in actually Nice. I just want to. I, I want to see how it grows. I'm making basket. It's basket making materials. Yeah. But I also, also want to see how rye grows where I am. I'm quite high up a hill and all that sort of stuff going on in my head. 
and actually I was just there and the smell of the soil and this the smell of me in the soil was just like god this I like this I enjoy this why aren't I doing more of this and it is very very gratifying um and we need to create the opportunities for, for doing that it's not good enough just to say to everyone you should be growing your own food society should be creating the space for people to grow their own food it's not everyone's cup of tea not everyone can do it in society they've not got the physical skills or the the interests and and that that is absolutely fine but creating the opportunities to for people to grow is good for their own diet their own mental well-being and ultimately for the planet i think i'm a little bit of an oddball and i think a lot of people envision uh an improvement of the world being that yes we've got automation but automation should give us the freedom to do more things on our own which is like i don't disagree with that premise but my perspective is that we need to instead of have more free time we need to be more invested in our ecology and our food systems and that that should be what we're doing with that excess time not lounging around that's we're still really not even made for that uh, it's it's a component of like our rest and relaxation, but being outside and in nature and getting dirt under your fingernails is, uh, you know, magnif- you know, uh, exponentially better for you than sitting inside and being able to watch TV for an extra four hours a day. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's going to take a seismic shift in values and attitudes. Uh, I hope it doesn't come about because of some massive c- catastrophic climate incident. But like you say, that I think we have rights in society. Everyone has rights, but everyone has responsibilities. And increasingly, we need to write into people's responsibilities the planet and, and taking care of the planet. And, you know, like you say, if, if, if because of automation we get a day off, okay, we really shouldn't be driving down to the airfield, popping in our plane and having a zing around because we can, or getting on a jet ski and making a lot of infernal noise. Jet skis, goodness me, they should just be banned tomorrow, if you want my opinion. <laughs> But uh, I'm sure the jet skiers listening, thinking, hmm, that's not fair. But, you know, we've, got to, we've just really got to put under the microscope exactly how that free time is used. Free time should be free time to deliver a, a healthier planet for everyone, not free time to burn more yeah. um, and to consume more. And that's one of the issues we have is trying to imagine a world. You know, when I was an archaeologist, I was poor. And all I ever wanted was time, you know? I didn't, like, just wanted time. But we increasingly live in a world now where you have to consume in your free time. You have to go out and do something. What should we do today? Let's go out and consume. You know, doing nothing is an option. Yeah, and doing things that... So this is a little off topic, but... Uh, here in the United States, one of the things that's really grown in the last few years is foraging. And like, it's, it's a great hobby for people to have, like, I'm not trying to dissuade people from foraging. However, uh, the practice is, how do I identify foods that I can eat and not how do I integrate myself into the ecology so that there are more foods for everyone. And a lot of these, these things that are being foraged are getting essentially wiped out because, you've got a bunch of people going into an ecology and they don't understand like if everyone says i'm only going to take a third well if the you know for example fiddleheads if there's 10 fiddleheads someone takes a third of those there's seven fiddleheads someone takes a third of those down to five fiddleheads someone takes a third down to like two or three fiddleheads and you know that's not sustainable i i think that the you know how do we create the conditions where there's more fiddleheads and that should be just as important as actually you know being like i want to eat foods that come from nature you know whatever the the microbiology that's involved with that and all those good things that are good for us um but we're uh, very consumptive in that relationship with our environments yeah i mean that that is the thing i mean i was at one point touring with writing a book called hedgerow craft um i get it would have dropped it would have bombed in the states um it's not to say it wouldn't have bombed here but it would have bombed in the states because you don't have any hedgerows <laughs> yeah and i would love that book because i i am very interested in hedgerows and there's nobody here that does them so there's i think i can go to canada to learn there's like one place that has a class and it's like 12 hours away uh, yeah that's yes. like uh, probably <laughs> the only thing within three thousand miles yeah, because I, I think the only hedgerows are sort of New England way. I've been reliably informed that there was a kind of 
attempt many years ago to plant out hedgerows. But of course, the British and European landscapes since the Bronze Age have had these living boundaries, what we would call hedges, which take management all the time. And I, I'm very keen, I, I really love the crafts that come out of the hedgerow. The tricky situation you're in is if, if you, if I were to land a bestseller, for example, and everyone got themselves a little hedging hook and went out and cut, cut some stuff from the hedgerow to make something, what would happen is our landscape would be denuded of hedgerows. So you exactly, exactly that we need, to, you know, it is, we're consuming, we're consuming all the time, you know, and, and me wanting to write a commercial book about hedgerow crafts would be actually promoting a form of consumption in a way. Uh, and what we need is that kind of restoration, restorative. Uh, and that means it's it's very interesting. I, I've done some work on commonality and the commons and what the concept of common access is and how it's managed and who has rights and all this kind of stuff. And there's, there's, a, there's a very, very strong historiography of that in, in the sort of English landscape that I that I know about and, uh, and aware about. Uh, and it's exactly that. If there's a resource in a landscape that can be used to make something, at some point, you're gonna have to carve it up and decide who can make from it. So there, you know, there are all those ethical questions. I think around byproducts is the way in which we should be maximizing, you know, because farmers actually don't have the time to hedge, traditionally, all the hedgerows in the British landscape. And to their credit, they're engaged in programs here where they maybe will, they flay hedges now. So you have a machine that goes along and it's brutal. It just flays the whole hedge and it leaves it scarred and it's raw. And actually you get these big open wounds on the plants, which then can attract infestations and cankers and all that kind of stuff. It's not ideal. And of course, they've probably got a barbed wire fence either side of it. So they don't really care about the hedge as a functioning en entity. Increasingly, you can be involved in schemes where you maybe flay it once every three years, or once every two years, so that you're encouraging growth. And also these are uh, kind of corridors, wildlife corridors, uh, nesting seasons as well, and all that kind of stuff. But actually, if you upskilled enough community members to hedge, who have the skill, a lot of hedgers, all they want to do with the stuff they cut out of the hedge is burn it for brash. And, you know, that's the byproduct could be used. Anywhere there's a byproduct, it can be used. And that's maybe what we need to just think. That's what we should be thinking about now. You know, for any time a municipal authority is out cutting something, flaying something, chopping it back, which is the kind of petrochemical boomer generation does you yeah. know if it's growing cut it uh cut it back try to keep you know, it static grass, so it doesn't change the size like yeah yeah of... yeah i mean lawns need to look like carpets and i get it i get it i i kind of get the I, I get that aesthetic you know if you were born and brought up in a city and you move to the country you don't know what natural grass looks like you just want a lawn you want a carpet uh, and it's actually, it's taken me a while to look at my lawn now, which someone would say it's messy. But aesthetically now, my lawn is beautiful because it, it is allowed to just grow. And I will sigh. There's a patch. I, it's very, I'm looking out the window now. You can see me, <laughs> the viewers, obviously, the listeners can't see me, but I'm looking out my window. You know, down the bottom now, I did a big sigh. That was the first sigh I've done in three years. And then about halfway up the garden, I, I don't think I've sighed that for, for two or three years as well. And that's got a little bit more grass in it. Now, what I did with the lawn out the front of the house here is I've done a tight mow now, more regularly. Uh, and that is imitating a tight graze because grasslands were grazed. Uh, and that tight, the imitation of the tight graze obviously encourages different species. And in fact, what we've had is uh, thrushes and blackbirds um, coming for worms on that patch now because it's been very tightly grazed. So it's more like a, a grassland where you get birds coming in and feeding. So, so I've tried, I've tried to sort of um, mix it up really in my garden. But a lawn to me now, like there's nothing more beautiful than watching long grasses in the wind, you know. And now I look at lawns, and they are abhorrent you know, they, they to, to me that are cut for the sake of neatness and tidiness. 
like there's a cognitive dissonance going on in the mind of someone who's doing that yeah they are not they are not engaging with the planet absolutely uh, and i i also have a messy yard i was actually just before we started recording uh i went out and i was just checking on some of the plant uh, the whips that i had planted a year ago and i was just kicking over the the dandelion heads that were all you know throwing seed and i saw my neighbor pull out and i was like ah oh, they're probably so mad at me right <laughs> yeah. I, I have I have that. I've got a neighbour that has a pristine, lovely neighbours. They really are, and they have a pristine lawn. And I understand, like you know, to be honest, it's like we don't have the time to manage. We, you know, we got a big garden. Well, believe it or not, now new builds in in the UK, you don't want a big garden. A because developers want to get as many houses on the plot as possible, but actually people don't want big gardens. They want room enough to sit out on the patio in the sun, have a barbecue, drink some white wine, and that's it. You know, whereas me, when I clapped eyes on this place, which we got five years ago, like I didn't even go and I, I, I said to the agent, we'll take it. I hadn't even been in the house. I just saw it had a big garden, had an amazing view of the bay and it had a workshop at the back. So I was like, we'll take it. My wife <laughs> like, do you want to come and have a look inside first? <laughs> that, yeah, that's similar to my story. Uh, we found our house. It's got about uh, two hectares and um, th- that's pretty uncommon around here, but it butts against a highway and um, there's a strip of land between us and the highway as well that's about another 10 hectares it's a long thin strip but uh, I looked at it and it was the square footage we needed and I looked in the backyard and I was like nobody's back here and it's just a mix of woods and grasslands I'm like this is perfect and my wife hadn't even seen it and I put an offer on it and she's like can I see it first <laughs> and I was like yeah I guess <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. As, as long as it had a house it's, yeah uh, that's, it's we'll make it work yeah, it's interesting. And of course, you know, I um, I work at university now, so we've been incredibly busy and I've got young kids as well. So my days of um, uh, jumping into a, a costume of an 1880s farmer and spending a year immersed in the world of farming uh, aren't over. They will come back very definitely. But I had to sort of in some ways grow up a bit. And, you know, I, I'm... I'm it's great to sort of let the garden go because the species have been absolutely amazing. Um, you know, but I, that, that's where I do feel for people at the end of the day, we don't have the time. We have created a society that doesn't have the time to look after its landscape. Yeah. Uh, and there are other elements we need to, we need to improve access, meaningful access to landscapes, not just park here, get out, go on a walk, but meaningful access is about park here, get out, have an induction, build a dry stone wall, uh, maintain these hedgerows, dig these ditches, put up some fence posts, you know, uh, sow some sow some seed here, dig out some invasive species there. You know, we need to create those uh, frameworks for public engagement and, and volunteering because I think people do want to do it. Uh, we have something called the National Trust over here. I think you have a National Trust over there, uh, which owns, owns a lot of properties. They have a big huge uh, volunteer workforce and there's a program of engagement and and that you know these are the positives that I think are coming out of the turn if you like the natural turn here in the UK it's a bit different I mean in the states you can walk for days and not see anyone uh you know in the UK this is a very crowded little island sometimes I I don't think people realize how crowded this little island is not quite as crowded as Holland um but I, I moved to Wales, partly because that's where my wife's from. Um, but a big part of me was like, uh, you know, I, I am on the doorstep here of national parks, uh, country parks, coastlines, um, mountains. It's, it's joyous out here. But where I lived in the southeast of England, I'm not joking, you know, country parks of a weekend, there's no parking spaces. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've got a couple of parks around here. Uh, and like I said, it's, it's a little rural, but it's not super rural. I'm a half hour outside of Boston and, um, it's, you know, you go to the, the hiking trails and there's about 40 SUVs shoved into the little parking lot, some of them on the road. It's all these massive SUVs and they're all doing the same thing, like walking their dogs. And that, that's about it. Uh, they're not going off the trails. Uh, they don't really understand the ecology that they're looking at. And I think to, kind of tie that back into what we're talking about, this restorative understanding of our relationship with the landscape. Much like the UK, much of 
this part of the country was clear cut uh, multiple times. And one of the, the damaging effects that I think is not talked about enough is that the forests here, um, they, there's no successional sp uh, transitions in our forests because all of the old growth is gone. So the nuts from the trees that take a long time to travel, uh, there's no way for there to be, you know, the hickories and the walnuts and all these other things that would, you know, be the next step in our forests um, from taking hold. So you walk in the forest and there are these massive pines and black cherries and the occasional oak. And then below them, like, you know, 20, 30 feet tall are the next round of pines. There's no change in that evolution of the forest. And, yeah. you know, people can walk around and say, oh, this is so serene and blah, blah, blah. But you're missing this very important part of our natural succession in the ecology. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've literally just come out of a meeting. We were talking about exactly the same thing uh, here in Swansea during the 19th, well, late 18th and 19th centuries. Huge amounts of copper were smelted. And when you smelt copper, you're driving off arsenic and sulfur. And what was happening is it's coming out of chimneys and just being blown over the hills. So it just killed. I mean, some of the photographs, aerial photographs from the 1920s, it's just like the surface of the moon. Uh, and what they then did in the 60s and 70s is to try and restore the hillsides. They planted a lot of pine. We also planted a lot of pine as well in this country because pit, for things like pit props and uh, it was, there was a, ta a tax offsetting you could do if you plant forests. So you just bundle a load of pine. So these community groups are taking the pine down and, and looking for that, as you say, the residual seed, the residual indigenous woods to come through. But of course, the challenge you have is exactly that, that what comes through is the pine. And we've got, we've bro it's broken, it's broken. And, and, the, and, and the other thing is, is, as you say, a lot of people like in the south of England will look out the window at the beautiful chalk downland and they'll see sweeping hills. It's green. That's good enough. And I lived in that part of the world for long enough to realise that, and I was quite seduced by it when I first went down there, oh, it's lovely, the chalk downlands, rolling hills, ancient landscape, Stonehenge, you know, all of this. And actually, uh, I, I lived there for 10 years, and I think it was in the February before I left, I realised how much of a rat-infested desert it was, you know, and the soil, the hills have been so denuded, and you've got monocrop, if it's wheat, barley and rapeseed, uh, just as far as the eye can see. And everyone goes, oh, look at these lovely, wonderful yellow fields, bright yellow fields of, of rapeseed. That's not, that's not lovely. That's terrible. Uh, and it takes a long time, I think, for those that, aesthetics. I think I talk about in Kreft, I think about, I talk about uh, Kant, the philosophy of aesthetics, uh, you know, the, the, the pure aesthetics, pure beauty and dependent beauty. And I think we have these things called what are called areas of outstanding natural beauty here in the UK, which are protected, designated areas of outstanding natural beauty. Um, and I always make me chuckle because actually they're not natural. They're, 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 they come from the Anthropocene. They come about because of human activity. The rolling chalk downlands, grass downlands, are there because they've been grazed since the Bronze Age. Okay, so they're not wild. They're because managed herds have grazed them. Okay, so you take natural, okay, outstanding, questionable. You know, I, I was in the Cantabrian mountains three years ago. That's an outstanding landscape. <laughs> northern Spain so if they're not natural and they're not outstanding okay they're areas of beauty well beauty is a subjective concept okay and if you've got dependent and uh, pure beauty well if I think dependent beauty is really the way we should be thinking about it they're not actually that beautiful because they're not functioning as beautiful places they're just being um, exploited really through industrial farming so what you're actually left with once you've taken the uh, natural the beauty uh um out of the equation is an area it's just an area it's a fiction and the english landscape is in some ways uh, uh, the rural little of the english landscape is a fiction and it's a fiction that's perpetuated still to this day in we have a series called country file country file it's all about wonderful country file you watch that program in january the, the colour grading on the actual programme has been ramped up so high, it's almost like luminous green. 
it's like intoxicating green. So can we get it green enough? Turn up the green in it. Uh, and I remember talking to someone who actually worked on it, who presented on it, and I won't name. And he said, we're not allowed to show any barbed wire. <laughs> so we live in, we, in England where there's a good number of people have made a lot of money out of perpetuating this myth of this green and pleasant land. And of course, that's starting to be eroded on historical social grounds. Uh, but I think on, on ecological grounds, it's, uh, it needs properly eroding. It's, it's actually not green and pleasant. It's overexploited. It's sick and it's poorly. Uh, and we need, to, we, we, we need to act pretty quickly to repair it. And the, one of the best ways to repair it is to put people back in it, people with understanding. So they're not like, you know, if you want a wildlife habitat, you have to keep dogs out of it. You can't have dogs and wildlife because you run a dog once or twice through a habitat, off the lead, dogs having a lovely time, everyone's having a lovely time, burning some of that energy off your puppy, great. But you run a dog through a wildlife reserve two or three times, certain species will go. They'll just go. That's how they're bred. They're bred to go. And dogs are bred to do one thing. So how can you engage with landscapes in a more responsible way and actually get hands on? That's an educational program. It's a cultural program as well. It's about values. I could talk about the ecology all day, but I did want to talk to you about your book. Uh, <laughs> and you brought it up, so now I can transition to it, despite my interests pulling me the other way. Um, so craft, is it craft or craft? How is it pronounced? Well, I actually, it's, it's it, craft. Is probably is, okay. is, 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 is probably the traditional way of, of saying it. I often say "craft" just to differentiate it from "craft." If we're talking about this thing, this knowledge, this wisdom that we do appear, we don't appear to have a modern word in English that relates to the old English way, the way that word was used in the uh, late ninth and early tenth centuries. Yeah, when it's, when it's used as a gloss to describe uh, power, knowledge, wisdom, uh, even virtue as well, uh, and I, I, you know, that's what's interesting to me is what is that thing that we've lost? Yeah, I wanted to ask. Uh, I, I believe you wrote it after the BBC series were pretty much wrapped up. I'm assuming the that experience uh, heavily impacted how that book was written, and I guess where the ideas came from. Yeah, it did. It, it it did. You know, it was, I think, a number of like moments when I'm doing something and I think, ah, oh, this is this is the smart bit about this. This is why this is clever. Yeah. You know, and that could be any that could be anything, really, even like making a hurdle. OK, splitting the woods, getting the so how do you split the wood? Well, the theory is this. That's nothing smart in the theory. It's a point of practice. It's the way you hold your body, the way you move, that then once you get that flow, that you think, ah, oh, that's the smart bit. That's why you twist it over. That's why you do that. And when you come to make a, a hurdle panel, split wood, you're making a fence post basically out of split hazel. There's a couple of little tweaks that you do with the wands, the, uh, the withies or the wands that bind it together, that basically stop it from falling apart the moment you pick it up. Uh, and there's this, 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 and then that, that, those, the skill, the intelligence of the skill, the intelligence of how something is made and those little tricks that you do to make something. And there's the intelligence of the way it's resourced. Because if you don't manage the coppice wood to produce the wood to make the hurdle, then you're going to run out of hurdles. So it's the intelligence of how that's managed and not overexploited. And then there's the intelligence of how the hurdle is used to pen sheep onto a patch of ground to concentrate their dung so that you organically produce yields uh, or, or, or try and uh, improve your yields. So the intelligence, the craft in the making of a hurdle actually manifests itself in both the way it's resourced, the way it's made, the way it's used, and in the way it's disposed. You know, it runs out of uh, use. You know, hazel hurdles will last maybe two or three years, three or four years, maybe if you can look after them. Um, what do you do with it then? Well, 
it's fine. You can just burn it. You could use it to light your stove. It, it has another function. And then finally it's ash. And then that ash goes out onto your garden plot. And guess what? That's provide, providing potassium for your food. So the intelligence behind the whole process is what I was really interested in. It's a really thoughtful, introspective approach to craft and doing things for the sake of doing them throughout all those components of the process. You know, as we've been talking, it really speaks to the fact that this is what we're wired to do and how we can integrate ourselves into the landscape in a, in a way that we can improve the landscape with human interaction as opposed to this idea that the thing to save the ecology is for humans to stop being in it, uh, which I think has been an understandable reaction to the damages that we have done in the last 80 years, specifically speaking, or you can even say since industrialism. I I, I understand it, but it, it does erase that human aspect that humans have impacted and, and improved the ecology across the planet for 12,000 years. This is a blip in the history of humanity, and it doesn't mean that we are the virus or you know whatever terminology people might use, but that we have to really think about our our place and our our craft, as you say, as something that's a, a unique uh, way to be involved with the environment that we live within. Yeah, I mean, it's like we, you know, I think the, the one of the problems I have with rewilding in inverted commas is is you know, the re element. What are you going back to? Are you going back to fourteen hundred AD? Are you going to back fourteen 14- 100 BC, you know, that, what, what's the re, you know, that, and, and that exposes it as an ideological project. Now, don't get me wrong. If you want to restore a landscape, put a bloody big fence up and stop people getting into it is, you know, is, is the sort of emergency measure and, and let it just breathe uh, a little bit and have a, have a break from human beings. Uh, but the long, you know, we're not going to feed the world uh, by doing that, by, uh, I don't, I like you, I think I don't agree necessarily that we need designated wild places and that other places aren't designated because I think the danger there is you get inequalities across the planet. You know, and we, we really, we have to be very careful in the UK at the moment because, you know, we, if we decide, well, actually, no, we shouldn't be producing food here. We should turn it back. We should think about the pollinators. We should think about X, Y, you know, restoration and rewilding going to have to grow that food somewhere and if it's not in our backyard it's going to be in brazil's backyard so we need we actually really need to think very very intelligently about how actually we 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 grow food we restore the habitat that's what we've got we've got to grow food we're going to restore the habitat we've got to make it financially sustainable because you know otherwise it that, that, that has to be a goal has to be part of it and then the fourth thing maybe just maybe if we can a little bit of profit for those that work really hard to do that. Okay. Sure. But at the moment, that's the one way around. No one's interested unless there's profit in it. Uh, and, you know, there's a big lobby across the world that just wants the profit. And that's, you know, there's, there's a great line, isn't there, amongst the diggers. Um, a common treasury for all is what it should be. The landscape shouldn't be an opportunity for people to make profit. Maybe somewhere down the line, if we've successfully fed X number of people, improved the environment, and the whole system's financially wiped its own face, yeah, if there's profit at the end of that, great, well well done. But uh, for, at the moment, we are in a situation where profit is driving what happens, and, and of course, that, is, that, that, that idea is a relatively recent concept. Absolutely. Uh, in the story of the human world that, that, that landscapes for profit. Yeah. And I think, you know, at least the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of talk about things like carbon credits. While I think it's well-meaning, it's still very profit focused. And I don't know if we are capable of fully um, accounting for the externalities of our economic models. And, you know, I I think it's, you know, it's like a Band-Aid on a, you know, a stomach wound. Like, you know, it's not going to really do much, except it might look good at first. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you if you put that to the sort of, if you introduce carbon credits or carbon taxes, what you do, you're just going, you're working with the existing system. Exactly. Which is going really to, uh, to mean that if you can burn stuff, you can afford to burn stuff, you can burn stuff. Yeah. And the danger is, is we live in an aspirational world. 
there's no doubt about it. People want to show up. We, we live in that aspirational world. We want new stuff. We want to be seen to have new stuff because we want to seem to be wealthy and powerful. You know, we have those kind of aspirations and that that's very toxic. Um, and, you know, we need to change that. We need to change. And that's very difficult. You know, if someone goes into a secondhand store and buys an item of clothing from a secondhand store, there's a certain stigma attached to that. You know, what's happening is hopefully the values will change is that, you know, actually that someone going into a secondhand store and buying something secondhand is more virtuous and more desirable than someone who has to buy something, feels they need to buy something new. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard to communicate. You know, I, we, we try and tell all our family members uh, Christmas this year, can it preferably, can it be secondhand? You know, and that is that is anathema to some people. Oh, I can't buy second. I'm not buying second hand. You know, that's a, and, and we've got to we've got to get into that space really, where we have a different set of values that actually uh, uh, excess, excess, excessive consumption, a consumption for the sake of consumption. Yes, it, it is demonized, and I, that is where it becomes a little bit hard because you know it's about values. It's about values and. Yeah, spending lots of money and being really flashy uh, is not cool. It's really not cool. We like smoking. You know, there was a time when smoking was cool. Uh, <laughs> we were watching Greece the other day. Bit of a tangent, you know the the, the Greece. I, yeah. you know, I grew up yeah. watching that with my sisters, and and amazing. I love it. I actually love it. Christ, the amount of smoking in it. <laughs> I wonder I how many times I had girl. to change the equipment out because it just got destroyed from all the smoke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and now, and smoking in some ways has been sort of, I'm not demonized is the wrong word, but it's just, it's not fashionable anymore. It's not fashionable for obvious reasons. And I hope, I'm slightly concerned. I don't think we've got time for fashions to change. No. You know, I think this has to be driven actually by values and by responsible values. And I think both the US and the UK, UK are currently still in this situation. I don't mind saying it. We've had leaderships that are not intellectually equipped enough to deliver that on those values. You know, they're just not. Uh, and, and this is a step backwards really, because this is the point at which we should be doubling up not cooling off on on and and the language that's come out of your past incumbent uh, and our, our present incumbent is woefully inadequate for the the scale of the challenge absolutely uh, and you know i think that's that is a big that is a big problem at the moment is around values um and it's got to we've got to believe in it and our, our leaders have got to believe in it come together and push the agenda forward because if we don't the legacy for our children, children's children, and for the planet, uh, is is going to be pretty horrific. It's yeah, it's scary stuff when we start thinking about like we're heading towards this cliff, and we all know it's there, but it doesn't seem like anyone wants to be the one that says, "Okay, well, I'm willing to make a change, and mm. of a real change, not driving a Tesla, but something that actually makes a difference." Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I, I we got from high tech to low tech to no tech, you know, and wake up on the weekend and think, what can I do this weekend that doesn't involve damaging the planet? Yeah. And that's what we need to introduce more of those weekends, more of those. And like you say, it's not about, it's very hard. Look, you know, you know, I don't want to come across as some kind of purist. I've got a car out there. It's an old banger, 20, 20 years old religiously every year I try and keep it on the road but I fashioned a world for myself where I can walk to work okay now the fact is my wife can't she's got to drive you know so and we're looking at electric cars can we make the leap can we it is about slowly all of us migrating perhaps a bit quicker than if I was saying this 10 years ago yeah maybe not so slow but migrating our values towards something that is more going to be more respectable to our, our, our descendants. But in this mindset of thoughtful consumption, I got to ask, uh, one of my favorite parts of the book was about your skep hives. 
because they're non-existent here in the United States, but it's something I'm super curious about as a beekeeper. Um, And I'm just totally frustrated with traditional beekeeping. So I just really enjoyed reading about your thought process. And um, it kind of reminded me of like the Tibetan monks who create them mandalas and then they let them wash away. And that seems like the same process with the skeps where you're like, you're making something that you know and acknowledge that is very short-lived, even though it's a very long, thoughtful labor of love. So for folks that aren't familiar with skeps, and I know we're running a little bit out of time, can you talk quickly about them and uh, a little bit about that process? Yeah, a skep is, in, in essence, it's a, it's a basket, it's a straw basket. Uh, and it's one of the things that I'm, I make quite a lot of. There's, there's a thing on YouTube at the moment I did back in lockdown, first lockdown, uh, called Shed Crafter. And I basically show how to make a basket in my um, in my shed, a skep basket. Uh, and the great thing about skeps, really, they, they, they have a kind of social and economic situation. You might be, you've got a lot of straw because you live in an agricultural world and there's straw aplenty. When we used to grow long straw varieties uh, and you've got winter months where you haven't got an iPad or a tablet or a TV to, to keep you occupied, just chat in the fire maybe a bit of song, uh, I don't know. Uh, so you've got time. Uh, so you've got raw materials, you've got time. So you can make these baskets. So they're cheap and easy to make. If you try to make one now, it'll take you ages, ages. <laughs> okay. Because so, you also have to strip down bramble to use the, for binding them and everything. Anyway, we don't like skeps now because one of the problems is you can't get to the bees inside the skeps. So in the 19th century, what they did is developed uh, frame hives where you could take each frame out and you could inspect them, you could inspect your bees and you can manage your bees. Now that comes from a very scientific way of understanding the world where you see a problem, you treat it, you intervene. Uh, And increasingly we use chemicals to intervene now so that we can knock back the burden of both um, insects that get in there and prey on the bees, but also funguses as well that, that prey on the bees. Um, so I kind of understand all of that, especially if you're, mon- if you're making profit out of bees. And that's what a lot of the, the lobbies, uh, beekeeping lobbies, want to see. They don't want to see people using skeps because the risks are that in your skep, you get a buildup of these um, uh, pests and mites and the bees then carry them and spread them around. But of course, the thing with the skep, uh, the other thing with the skep, I should say, is if to get to the honey, you have to destroy the brood. You have to dig the whole brood out of the basket. OK. Uh, and that's seen as a bad thing. Well, it is a bad thing. But if you know the queen in that skep is four or five years old, she's not going to have another laying year. So you can target that skep. You can take the wax and the honey out of that. You can burn the skep because you can just sit by the fire and make another one because you've got all the materials. So there is a social and historical context within which they're made. The thing about skep beekeeping for me was that it was allowing the bees to do their own thing, putting the bees' well-being within the bees' hands, uh, and also making sure that the skeps were burnt. You know, that's one thing. If you if you do leave something to get infected, the thing with skep keeping is you want the swarm, you want her to hive, you uh, to swarm, you want the queen to swarm, you want that to happen, you don't want to suppress that. Whereas when you're frame hiving, you don't want the queen to swarm because it splits the colony and you get less honey. So you're think you're looking after yourself and not the bees. Skeps allow you to look after the bees. And if you get a bit of honey out of it, at the end of the day, all well and good. And the great thing I found about the skeps, when you're encouraging swarming, you're encouraging her, the queen, to breed. You're accelerating the process by which actually natural selection works. Okay. And the other thing is with skeps is because they're straw, they're insulated. Less bees die off in the winter, which means when it starts to get warm in the spring, more bees are there ready to get going. So they get going quicker than your box hives, which often have a just... They just keep that chill, you know, extra week, two weeks into the spring and also the chill and they, and they catch moisture as well. These big, you know, if you've got cedar wood hives, they catch moisture. So you get more die off. So, so they really worked, 
But what you have to bear in mind is it's a different way of beekeeping. And I don't want to upset beekeepers who have traditional hives and who have a problem with skeps, because in some nations they are actually banned. I think they are um, here. Yeah, I don't want to upset people. I just want people to understand that it's a different knowledge and a different wisdom. Yeah, it's it's a super cool process, and it's it is it's villainized very heavily in the beekeeping community. So reading it was just I felt like my brain exploded, and I was like, this is a totally different perspective than I've ever heard on skeps, and I really appreciated it. So. I know we're wrapping up. Let me ask uh, if there's anything you want to plug. If you know, where can people get your book? Do you have anything else coming up for people to uh, check out? Uh, no, you can. I mean, you can buy the book uh, online uh, anywhere. Uh, there, from the publisher, is always best. Uh, there are certain uh, um, nefarious global enterprises that uh, aren't necessarily doing the planet any good. You could buy from them, or you could buy from the publisher. Um, you could check out uh, Shed Crafter on YouTube. It's entirely free. It's two and a half hours of how to make a basket broken down into 12, uh, 12 minute episodes. Awesome. Um, how to make a basket from scratch. It, I did it in my shed. It's my little lockdown project. I did it for fun. That's me. Um, ha have a look at that. And, and if, if you go out and end up making a basket and using that as a laundry basket instead of a plastic basket, if just 10 people do that, I've, I've, I've brought some good into this world. I'm going to go check that out. I've got a bunch of little oaks that need to come down, so maybe I can put them to work. <laughs> so Good stuff. Alex, thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks ever so much for having me on. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on new and exciting guests. We appreciate your support, and we really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.